The United States has found itself increasingly in conflict with China. One specific American politician staked a large part of his 2016 campaign on the idea that China was stealing jobs from Americans. Amidst all of this, support for the existing order of international trade and finance is dwindling. In their recent book, Trade Wars Are Class Wars, Matt Klein and Michael Pettis argue that what we perceive to be trade wars between different countries are actually just symptoms of conflicts between the economic classes within countries. On today's episode, I talk with Matt Klein about the dynamics that underlie this line of thinking and what we can do to improve the balance in domestic economies and the international trade system. You're listening to Upset Patterns. Income can be spent or it can be saved. And when it's saved, it goes through financial channels to be either invested domestically or invested abroad. For people whose spending exceeds their income, they can borrow either from others within their country or from foreigners. One person's debt is another person's investment. Why do you have cross-border flows of capital at all? And then why do they go to certain places and not other places? And so to the first question, you know, there's there's a mix of things, and one of which is, you know, there are people who are trying to, you know, find, you know, make money, and there's only so many opportunities domestically. Uh, but some of that is a function of there's maybe too much savings available um, for certain people, entities within certain societies, and <clears throat> because there's a, you know, that there's an excess of savings relative to domestic investment opportunities, they will go abroad. It's just that for various dis- reasons, there, there are certain distortions going on in your own society. You have more money than you can possibly put to work at home. And so by definition, the only other place you can put it is abroad. That's one explanation. There are other reasons, obviously, why you have foreign investment. There are, there are good reasons, too. Um, as you said, it's not, it's not purely a function of the case that cross-border um, investment is this sort of unproductive or even quasi-imperialistic uh, motivations. There are plenty of good reasons why people invest abroad, but this is an important one and sort of an understudied, I think, by sort of, sort of the mainstream um, economic literature. In terms of where things go, uh, again, you know, it, there are plenty of people who make a living or at least try to make a living trying to find the best productive investment opportunities globally and, and discerning among what's a good investment and what's a bad investment. So that is a real thing, and there are people trying to do that. But the book argues that this often doesn't end up being the case, and that the movement of credit across the world is often due to things like irrational exuberance or credit conditions unrelated to productivity. But at the same time, you can see historically that there, that foreign investment um, essentially goes in sort of waves of, or cycles of, of massive flows out and then retrenchment. And then when, the, when you're in a period sort of a, a foreign investment boom period, that there isn't really as much discrimination in sort of the aggregate level among what's a good investment opportunity and what's not a good investment opportunity. So there might be certain people who are trying to distinguish among the, the viability of particular projects, but those people are being swamped by the much larger sort of speculative forces of people who are just saying, well, it's a good time to invest money abroad and we have it, so let's let's go for it. And so we chronicle this pretty extensively in, in chapter two of our book. And, you know, one of the, I think one of my favorite examples is something that my, um, my co-author Michael Pettis um, liked to highlight, which is the example of the, the fictional country of Poyais, which was, and this is in the 1820s, which is one of the first foreign investment booms, really, that we had, you know, sort of in, in the modern period, broadly speaking, where British investors are feeling confident after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, their their banking system has just expanded dramatically. So this is sort of, a, there's sort of a generalized foreign lending boom 
across the world, not very, you know, there aren't just, there aren't really people discriminating uh, among, you know, what's a good project or not. And so one of the things that happens is this guy, um, Gregor McGregor, basically um, invents a country in Latin America that he's the Republic of Poyais and then manages to raise money in the London financial market selling sovereign bonds for this country that doesn't exist. And clearly that's an example of a situation where money is not purely chasing uh, the most productive outlets. It's, it's just sort of a general, you know, there's sort of just a, a frenzy um, of people looking for, you know, the hot new fad. And that's definitely an element as well. So there, there are a couple of different things that drive foreign investment. And we're not saying that, you know, foreign investment is always going to be unproductive or anything like that. Uh, but it's important to realize that just as with any other market, there's a whole mix of types of investors and different forces going on. Underlying the analysis in the book is the idea that higher income people will do different things with more money than lower income people. Put simply, rich people are more likely to save and invest if they get more money, since their material needs are pretty much already met. In contrast, lower income people are more likely to spend that extra money on consumption. So to be clear, when we say that there's differences in the behavior of individuals depending upon their income and wealth, I mean, this is actually just a pretty universal empirical finding <clears throat> across countries that do these kinds of surveys that the savings rate of people at the very top of the distribution is on the order of sort of 30 to 50 percent of income and for everyone else it's more like zero to five and that sort of and that intuitively makes this empirical finding makes intuitive sense because essentially you know, there's a certain amount of subsistence needs you have to have, and then there's a certain amount of reason, you know, luxuries you you choose to buy, and then past a certain point, even if you have very expensive tastes, you know, you can't. There's only so many goods and services you can consume on a regular basis, so you know, you have to do something else with that money, and so either, in, and generally that means accumulating assets, whether it's financial assets or housing or or you know, yachts are sort of interesting, sort of indeterminate, or art is like indeterminate, but essentially that's that's the um the fundamental. Uh, driver of what we're describing. And so <clears throat> if buying goods and services is consumption, which is how that's defined in the national accounts, then if you have more and more income, more and more purchasing power going to people who aren't consuming you know, that share or, or consuming less and less of that share, then you're going to have less and less consumption as a share of total national income. That's just got to be true by definition. When a country has a lot of its growth going to people who are saving rather than consuming, the only way for lower income people to consume more is by borrowing from the richer people who are saving. This transfer comes in the form of debt. So to get back to your macro question, there's sort of a trade-off here between the distribution of income, the balance between consumption and not consumption, and indebtedness. So you can have a high consumption, high inequality economy, but it requires a tremendous amount of new debt creation, which, you know, at a very simplified level, essentially very rich people lending to people who aren't rich to spend money. Um, and, you know, economists have studied what, what happens when this occurs, and it, unsurprisingly, it leads pretty regularly to crises, because, you know, if you're borrowing to fund your consumption, and your income isn't going to be growing dramatically to pay back those debts, then you're going to be saddled with a lot of debt service you can't pay. And the best case scenario is you simply bring your consumption back in line your income. But of course, as soon as you do that, that also brings other people's incomes lower relative to what they would have been. And that you know that's what leads to a, a crisis situation. Just as there are borrowers and lenders within countries, countries themselves can on the whole be net borrowers or net lenders. In other words, some countries spend more than they produce, and some countries spend less than they produce. So that's why there's this trade-off here. In terms of, sort of the global balance of payments perspective, what matters is, you know, where is this debt being um, 
raised versus you know who, who's borrowing and who, and who is uh, lending, and that doesn't have to be the same. It doesn't have to be in the same society. So globally, what we've seen, what we've seen in the United States and what we've seen globally is an increase in inequality, uh, real concentration of income and you know spending power at the very top of the distribution, and an increase in debt to fund consumption to sort of keep productive capacity running you know, more or less, not full, but, you know, at a certain level of, of, of output, uh, output at, at a total percentage of productive capacity. And that's led to a tremendous increase in debt. But the debt isn't always coming from the same place. You know, it, it the, where the debt is being borrowed versus who's doing the production isn't the same. And that's where you get trade imbalances, essentially, is, is, is our argument. So you can have a situation like the United States where disproportionately doing the borrowing on the, on the household and government side and sometimes the business side in order to buy goods and services, not so much producing stuff that aren't being consumed. Then you have other places where people are producing things that they can't afford, um, you know, China, Europe, most obviously, but not borrowing. And the, 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 I mean, sometimes the debt is there, but sometimes it's not. And so on, you know, on the net, then what you have is a situation where you have a, a sort of a transfer of real resources from places that are producing more than they can afford to buy domestically and sending it to places that are producing less than they should be able to produce, but uh, can't because of these sort of, you know, essentially stuff is getting dumped on them and they are, you know, like the United States and borrowing to make up the difference. To show how this imbalance of income and wealth within countries leads to trade wars, the authors look at three countries. The first case study in the book is looking at China. Now, China may be an economic powerhouse today, but its growth has been incredibly rapid, and political change has played a huge part in that. Sure. So the context I think that's relevant to have is that in the 19, you know, basically for well over 100 years, China, through a combination of foreign imperialism and wars and civil wars and revolutions and everything else, had spent many, many, well over 100 years, probably close to 150 years, in a state of both absolute and relative decline. And by the time you get to the late 1970s, with the death of Mao Zedong and the takeover of the Communist Party by Deng Xiaoping and his colleagues, you have a situation where China is extremely poor relative to sort of where it should be, whatever that means, um, just for all these outside and internal force of instability. And what they do is they they want to reverse this process. And so the first thing they do, which is pretty straightforward, is they simply take advantage of the fact that there's a peace dividend. China's no longer at war with anybody. Um, and there's no longer any internal revolutions that are being fomented either you know, domestically or by, you know, by the government or what have you. And they also try to liberalize some of the, the basic, you know, worst constraints that had been imposed under Maoism. And that understandably leads to a pretty significant pop in productivity and in growth. But unfortunately for them, uh, this process could only go so far while leaving them, you know, essentially in control. And there's a, tr there's a trade-off a little bit between the sort of political monopoly and political monopoly understood by the way, as having also control over the economy, um, and liberalization. So you have a situation where they wanted to liberalize some sectors like farming, cause it wasn't considered as, as strategically important if, you know, if, if a farmer in some village is able to sell their surplus and make a little extra money, um, versus sectors that were considered more strategically important, particularly in the cities, um, heavy industry, things like that. That led to an imbalance within China where food prices ended up rising much more rapidly than industrial goods prices. And so if you were in the city, uh, then you found that your real income was actually falling by the time you get to late 1980s. That led to instability. There were other th sources of instability, obviously. Um, but <clears throat> 
basically by the time you get to late 1980s, there's a real problem here where the government is trying to figure out how can they sustain growth? How can they maintain political control? And how can they avoid, you know, the sort of destabilizing forces they associate with liberalization? And after violently suppressing the pro-democracy movement in 1989, and then uh, the you, you sort of have an orthodox communist faction take over briefly in 1990, 1991, you have growth slow down very dramatically. Deng Xiaoping comes back in 1992, the Southern Tour. Um, and then they say, okay, we need to do something different here. We need to have very rapid growth, but we also need to make sure that we're the ones and people affiliated with us are the ones in charge. China had nearly double digit growth for decades. And despite slowing down recently, is still one of the fastest growing economies in the world. But behind that growth is a more nuanced story. One of the ways that the Chinese government kept growing its economy while also still being in control was through a lot of silly government investment. When a country is really poor, as China was, it has high growth rates as it catches up with richer countries. It can adopt technologies from the more productive countries, and basically, there's just a lot of room for improvement. So for a long time, the Chinese government could build a train station, an airport, a new apartment building, and whether or not it was really the best use of that money, growth was so fast that someone was bound to board that train or live in that apartment building. What they settled on is, is a variant of a development model that's existed in other places, including to a certain degree, um, you know, you can go back to like the Industrial Revolution in the UK and you can see elements of this or even elements of it in the United States in, in under Hamilton's report on manufacturers. But it's, it's a model that was most clearly pioneered in uh, Japan. And the idea is that if you concentrate income among people who are either the government itself or among you know people who are going to closely affiliate themselves with the government and get the those entities whether it's the government itself or the or, or you know businesses or what have you to invest and you have a real shortage of worthwhile investments which in china at that time you generally did because there'd been as i said like 150 plus years of just destruction then even if a lot of the investments might not, people aren't going to be very rigorous about evaluating projects, you're going to get a lot of good productive investments and it's going to lead to very rapid growth. And so even though the average you know, person might be losing out as a proportion of the total economic output, the share of, of household incomes goes down, which is what happened, that the absolute level of household income still rises so people feel good about you know, what's happening. And that's exactly what, did, what they did. No matter its faults, China's government can keep a lot of its people happy when there's sustained economic growth. And whereas many countries have gross domestic product as the end result of economic activity, China actually sets the target for GDP growth at the beginning of the year, and it's up to local officials to make sure that goal is met. Oftentimes, this would just mean that governments would spend money investing in arbitrary stuff. After all, because of the way GDP is calculated, this spending would contribute to its GDP, whether it was spent productively with long-lasting effects, or if it would basically crumble by the end of the year, well, that wasn't part of the incentive scheme. Any bad investments become much more apparent when economic growth slows down. Suddenly, that apartment building in the middle of nowhere is just a ghost town, and the airport in a location where no one lives doesn't have anyone boarding the flights. They actually have already seen a slowdown in growth. I mean, if we compare Chinese growth rates sort of pre-2011 to now, there's been a tremendous slowdown in growth. And that slowdown in growth, in fact, has come from a massive slowdown in the rate of fixed asset investment. And it's driven precisely by the, by the point that you mentioned, which is that they, you know, if you have a system that's designed to just invest as much as possible, take from, you know, basically, if there's a trade-off between consumption and investment, which, you know, you're keeping everyone employed, everyone's running, every, you know, production's at full tilt, essentially, there is going to be a trade-off between consumption and investment. And you deliberately squeeze consumption as much as you can and to invest as much as possible. 
then at a certain point, then you'd end up with a problem, as you said, where a lot of that investment is going to be wasteful. It's not going to be adding value to anyone. And it's just, you know, everyone would have been better off if there'd been more consumption. And in fact, you can even get to a situation where the squeezing of consumption itself is what makes some of those investments uh, less valuable than they otherwise would have been. And that definitely is something that happened in China. In fact, it's something that, you know, people in China at the leadership level are aware of. This is not a new issue. And, and that's why, in fact, you've seen the slowdown in fixed asset investments since 2011. Relative, to, you know, you had, grow, you had growth rates of like you know twenty, thirty percent for a long time, and now it's more like five, six. I mean, and I'm I'm talking about before the virus. Um, so this was a sustained slowdown. That was a deliberate policy choice because you had these issues like ghost towns, um, and you know this still is occurring. By the way, I mean there's there's stories you can still find pretty recently of of building you know subway stations or what have you in marshland far outside any city where anyone's living, but. In general, they, they, there is a sense of this is something that you have to be dealing with. The problem is, of course, if you do that, then all of the extent that all of those investments were providing jobs for people, even though those those jobs were not providing incomes that they could necessarily use to boost their own personal consumption, they're still going to have an impact um, on the economy and on, on people's employment and on and to a certain degree on, on the living standards of individual people. And that's, that's something that's going to be very challenging to see how they play that out. There are a number of policies within China that keep wages low and reduce the purchasing power of workers. The share of China's economy that goes to its workers is close to 40%, whereas in a lot of countries it's near 70%. Chinese workers are actually collecting a very small share of all of China's economic growth. But for now, it's enough to keep people satisfied. The fragility comes when growth eventually slows down and people aren't as happy with their smaller share of the pie. One of the policies that's you know pretty well known is that uh, you know labor rights on China are suppressed. That if you are you know adversarial unions that contest with management to get better pay for workers are illegal, or at least they're illegal in practice, and the government will persecute people who try to organize workers to get better wages, and that's one thing. Another policy is the hukou system, which ties your employment to the city you were born in. Of course, people commonly move from their place of birth to work somewhere else, namely from rural parts of the country to the cities. But this makes them akin to undocumented workers in their own country. They have to work a bit in the shadows, and they pay into the Chinese social security system, but do not get anything out. Many of the workers in Chinese cities came from the countryside. And, you know, they're, they're internal migrants, which is a perfectly normal thing you see happen in basically every industrialization story in the history of the world. But what's unusual for China is that those rural migrants were given systematically less economic and political rights than the people who were born in those cities. And so if you want school schooling or housing or health care or unemployment benefits or all sorts of other things, uh, you're not eligible for them if you're a rural migrant. That started to change a little bit, but it's basically still the case that those people were not eligible for all those things. They still had to pay the equivalent social security taxes for those benefits they couldn't get, but they couldn't get them unless they went home. And that, and they're also theoretically able to be deported at any time because you're, you know, there's, there, there, there's a lot of ambiguity about their legal status when they leave their hometown. And so that obviously is going to undermine the bargaining power of workers as well. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people. Another thing stopping lower-income people from getting more of the gains to China's economic growth comes from the accessibility of its financial system. China's government restricts what most savers can do with their money. Bank deposits are really the only available option, and those give people really low interest. 
Investing abroad is also very difficult and heavily controlled by the government. Something that's less well known, and that you know, my co-author Michael Pettis is who's really a you know, he's a professor um, at Peking University, and, and for he really studies the Chinese financial system, and is that for a very very long time the Chinese banking system was structured in a way that it basically stole from regular Chinese and redistributed their savings to businesses and other people, other entities that were going to make investments. And the way it did this was that. You have a state-run oligopoly of banks, and the banks would pay very, very low deposit interest rates. And you had a financial system, crucially, that really the only thing you could do to save money was put it in the banking system for a very long time. That's changed a bit recently, but you know, for a very, very long time, that was really all you could do throughout the 90s and the, and the 2000s. You really could just put it in the, in, in the banking system, in a deposit. Deposit interest rates were very, very low. Borrowing rates were also very low, but they were higher than deposit rates, so the banks were still earning a nice spread. But the deposit, but the uh, borrowing rates were very, very low relative to sort of the trend economic growth rate. So if you have you know NGDP growth of say, I don't know, fifteen twenty percent or something, and the depo- the borrowing rate was you know seven eight percent, then you're going to basically anything you do, uh, you're going to make money on, and so. That's essentially what happened. Of course, you know, credit, which, you know, obviously, if anyone could access that credit at that rate, then you'd have just overwhelming borrowing. You'd have, you know, source of inflation and what have you. So there was a, there was a, this was tempered by the fact that there were credit controls and, and the banks basically, under the guidance of the Communist Party, to a degree anyway, would direct credit towards favored projects and not towards others. And that, um, but, and of course, the people who got the credit, then became very loyal to the system. They got rich, and then they became promoted uh, promoters of the system. And essentially, what you know, what in fact the Chinese government now refers to as the vested interests that make it hard to change the system. And that persisted for a very long time. Now, Michael estimates that while this was going on, that the value of the transfer from households to businesses that got this was worth about three to five percent of Chinese GDP every single year, which is enormous. Now, starting in in the 2010s, there have been some changes um, in li- you know, liberalization of interest rates, where essentially interest rates didn't go up, but since trend growth went down, the, the gap um, between deposit rates and borrowing rates versus sort of real economy shrunk a great deal. And there's also been some um, expansion of, of savings vehicles that households can access that aren't um, bank deposits. So there's been some change there, and, and that sort of is coincident with the slight uptick in the share of household income as a share of GDP. Um, but you know, it's it's not huge, and, and that's a major tr- source of transfers. And there are some things that decrease the power of workers at the expense of business and the government that are a little less obvious. There are other things we can point to as well, by the way, like environmental regulations. So it, that's not something that's often thought of as having an impact on, on trade or, or the savings investment balances or what have you. But essentially, one way to think about pollution is pollution is a private tax imposed by a business on consumers. And that you know inflates its own in its own profitability, and so to the, you know the purpose of environmental regulation from this perspective, therefore, is essentially to offset the impact of this tax and and make sure that households are not getting cheated by by businesses. And if you don't have environmental regulation, then essentially what you're doing is you're transferring purchasing power from regular people to businesses who are going to have to end up paying for it later through worse health outcomes and so forth. And that's you know an example again where China has historically been relatively um, Accommodating to businesses, including foreign businesses, at the expense of its own people, that's changed somewhat recently in terms of environmental regulation. But in general, that's still um, uh, uh, the the way that China differentiates itself. A way that China differentiates itself from other societies. All of this adds up to China having a huge amount of excess savings. Even when domestic projects are getting money they shouldn't, there's still a lot of money left over. 
This allows the rich and ruling classes to send their money abroad to places like the United States to buy property, invest in companies, or buy U.S. Treasury debt. You have this massive increase in domestic indebtedness because you had this massive increase in domestic investment and the you know, foreign markets just weren't as able to absorb Chinese output as they'd been before and not growing at the same rate. And then by the time you get to sort of you know, 2014 onwards, there's a clear situation. You know, things have changed again, right? They're aware that they can't invest as much and they haven't been investing as much, but at the same time, they still have their sort of overall structural problems in the economy of the balance between consumption and and saving. And they still have the problem of they want to keep people employed and, and productive, which is a perfectly reasonable goal on their part. And the only way to reconcile that is you have to have some kind of new export boom, but, some, but it has to be different than the old one. China's also started this huge international investment project called the Belt Road Initiative. It's meant to connect countries across the world with new ports and highways, creating trade routes that are reminiscent of the Silk Road centuries ago. China has formed partnerships with foreign countries in an effort to make trade easier and increase its international influence. So I think that's the way to understand the sort of Belt and Road Initiative. A lot of people think of that as sort of some part of grand strategic plan. And I'm sure there are some people within the Chinese government who've become who were persuaded of the value of it for those reasons and probably it makes it easier to market it and stuff but i think at the sort of basic level it's easier to understand this as an economic choice that if you lend a bunch of money to people in you know pakistan or malaysia or latin america or whatever and then those people will then pay for chinese infrastructure projects then you're able to essentially keep up the game of investing more than you can absorb domestically, but instead of absorbing it domestically, it's absorbed somewhere else, which can work well if the countries you're, you're doing that in actually, you know, the investments you're making are good and then, you know, they can actually repay their debts and then everything works out very well for everybody. But, you know, what we've seen is that it didn't work out well. It essentially China's problem of over systematic overinvestment. They simply, they just brought that problem somewhere else and the debts have been absorbed by people and other other societies, and sometimes you have situations like in Sri Lanka where China does sort of a debt for equity swap, and people talk about the strategic implications, although not clear that was the end goal. Or you have situations like in Malaysia where they basically just try to renegotiate um, or renege or what have you because they just think this is a stupid project and that was the old government, they were corrupt. Um, and then you have situations also where the Chinese banks that have been involved in this are realizing that it's actually harder to do this in a way that doesn't lose money than they thought. And that create you know that creates incentives on, on their end as well to, to not do it as much. But I think all of this should be understood in that sort of broader context of <clears throat> you don't have enough good investment opportunities because consumption is suppressed, but you the only way you can really that you know of for getting growth, um, you know, overall production at a level that's sufficient to keep people employed is by investing, even if it's investing in stupid things. And so whether you're doing it at home or doing it abroad, that's essentially what ends up happening. And that, that does create a real challenge for them. All these factors add up to an imbalance of China's resources. Most people should be consuming more than they're able to, and the country's excess savings are being sent abroad or wasted on bad investments at home. By keeping wages low, Chinese companies are more competitive with American companies. Thus, frictions emerge in what appears to be the symptoms of a trade war, but is really just the outgrowth of a war between the classes in China. Germany is the second country the book looks at. Like China, Germany has a current account surplus, meaning that it sends more stuff abroad than it buys from other countries. But unlike China, Germany is already one of the richest countries in the world. It's also a part of a really weird setup in the Eurozone, where countries share a currency, can move goods and people across borders, but spending is done entirely by national governments, and their formation agreement limits how big they can run deficits. 
You can think of it like the United States without the federal government being able to spend money. Germany has also only been in its current form since 1989, and its adjustment since the fall of the Berlin Wall still impacts its economy today. It was both a political and sort of a business reaction to the end of communism, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and that after 1989, you have two things happen at once that are very significant. One is the reunification of East Germany with West Germany to a new and large federal republic, which initially people were convinced would be incredibly profitable. That basically you take people who were like Germans, but paid a lot less, who'd been using a, a bad economic system and bad management and, and worse technology. You give them Western technology, you give them Western management techniques. They all speak the same language. You can get this great growth boom. For a variety of reasons we talked about in the book, it didn't work out that way. It was a huge disappointment. Everyone ends up losing a lot of money. And so all the decisions that have been predicated on things working out well turned out to be disasters and had to be undone uh, to varying degrees. Germans had reunification influencing aspects of its economy, but the fall of the Soviet Union also introduced competition from a lot of its eastern neighbors. And the other thing that happened, which is also relevant, is that you have this sudden emergence of a new vast market of people in Central and Eastern Europe who suddenly, you know, historically had been part of sort of the broader European economy, who had been part of the sort of greater German business network, if you will, but had been cut off artificially by communism. And now they were available again. So German companies are saying, well, this is a great place we can move our business to. We don't have to go very far. A lot of them speak German. They're incredibly productive and they were way cheaper than people in our country. And so that's, uh, was a big, so of course that's great if you're Slovakian or Czech or Hungarian or what have you, or Polish. Um, but if you're West German, that's, that was a disaster. And there are ways that it could have been better for everyone, but it, it didn't work out because of the, the choices that were made and the, and the way those choices were made. It ended up being, a, you know, those sort of twin forces made it so that businesses basically just, German businesses really just kept a real lid on wages in Germany and, and cut investment. And that uh, led to severe domestic weakness and generated the surplus. One stereotype about Germany is that it's a nation of austere savers who are measured and responsible in the way that they use their money. But the book argues that Germany's surplus is actually just an interaction between its domestic policies and the circumstances outside the country. In fact, Germany hasn't had a current account surplus for very long. So the thing about Germany that, that is very interesting is that a lot of people, because of the experience of the past sort of 15 years, assume that the trade surplus or the current account surplus in Germany is this sort of natural, inevitable feature, that it's a that it's a consequence of German households' behaviors, of the German national character, thriftiness, of or whatever. But that ignores a lot of relevant information, including literally what happened just before the emergence of its recent surplus. And so it's very helpful to have context for understanding why the surplus emerged when it did. And when you have that context, you get a very different understanding of, of what the what what are the causes here? And the cause isn't so much that German households are thrifty, because they're not thriftier than really households in any other country in particular. I mean, Italian households actually are notoriously um, well, yeah, thrifty savers, I guess, is, yeah, enthusiastic, um, diligent savers, in fact, more so than German households. Um, French households, the same thing. And yet you see very different outcomes. But what you can do, even with a sort of simplified three-sector um, model, you know, households, governments, and businesses, you can see what drove Germany's current account uh, surplus 
the change in the current account, I should say, from essentially total balance in the 1990s. Current, in fact, they had a slight current account deficit for much of the 1990s into a massive surplus by the time you get to 2005 that's been sustained, if not growing, ever since then. In addition to the idea that Germans are just responsible and thrifty people, a common explanation for its current account surplus is that its industry is just that productive. So sorry if you like our high-quality goods so much that we end up selling you more of them than we buy from you. Well, productivity in German industry hasn't changed much. It's more due to an increase in German profitability during a time when companies were investing less. So you have a situation where domestic demand is, is stagnant or falling for many years in the 2000s, but you know the rest of the world is still humming along at not a particularly great growth rate, but it's fine. And so the difference between those two things leads to a massive increase or massive change in the current account balance and a massive increase in the, first the emergence of a surplus and then a very, very large surplus. And that's obviously very different than what you see. Uh, it wouldn't be possible if Germany weren't relatively small to the global economy. It wouldn't be possible if German companies hadn't you know, sort of been export oriented anyway in terms of where a lot of their sales were. But it has nothing to do with productivity or anything like that. I mean, actually export growth in Germany was slower during this period, much slower uh, manufacturing than in the 1990s when they had a deficit. So what really matters is that domestic demand was just incredibly weak. And that was because of the choice of German companies. Now, of course, if you want to get the question of why did this happen when it did. Germany, like China, also has a good deal of domestic policies that keep wealth and income distribution imbalanced and more skewed at the top. Between the late 1990s and 2007, the share of Germany's national income going to workers declined by 12 percentage points. A part of it was the decrease in spending on their social safety net, popular across the Western world at the time. Right. There were basically the, the thing that was really key and has gotten a lot of attention, rightly so, is what's called the Hartz reforms or Hartz IV or Agenda 2010. And it was all a set of changes to the German welfare system in the early 2000s, led ironically by a left-wing government. In fact, arguably the most, ostensibly, it should have been the most left-wing government in German history because it was a coalition of the Social Democrats and the Greens. Um, so in theory, you expect it to be the most left-wing government in, in, in the history of, of Germany. And yet, uh, it wasn't. And in fact, they were the ones that led this massive restructuring of the German welfare state. And part of the reason was, as you said, the sort of general consensus at the time is what people were supposed to be doing. There's a You can see a sort of common thinking between that and what had happened in the US a few years earlier. But uh, it was also driven by a sincere belief, driven by a belief that was that was grounded in the experience of the 1990s. That was done sort of at the ad hoc business level. That there was a real trade off between wages and employment, and that wages were a cost for businesses. And if you could lower that cost, they could keep more people on, in their job. So they thought, well, if we make unemployment benefits less generous, then people will take more jobs at lower wages, and that will keep cost pressure down. Was part of their thinking, and that worked in a narrow sense. They low unemployment rate did fall because unemployment's benefits were less attractive. But the way that they did that in practice was they basically forced a lot of people who essentially take an early retirement by getting on, you know, they lost their job at say 55. And then instead of, you know, trying to find a new, you know, very unpleasant job, you know, street, you know, sweeping floors or something, they just took unemployment benefits until they got retirement age. And then losing that benefit, they just ended up taking the, the low paid service job instead. Germany's wealth itself is incredibly concentrated. For example, 90% of businesses are owned by just 10% of the population. And property taxes are based not on current property values, but on the value from the mid-60s, meaning incredibly rich property owners are paying much less tax than their property is worth. The median German household is actually less wealthy than the median Spanish household, 
and only about as wealthy as the median Greek or Polish household. And the book also notes that since the mid-1990s, almost all the new jobs in Germany have been self-employed or part-time, with part-time work doubling its proportion in the last 30 years. So you look at where the increase in employment occurred, it's mostly part-time jobs. It's mostly very low-paying jobs. It's mostly jobs that lead to a higher rate of people who are working but are nevertheless at risk of poverty. And it's mostly people who are older. So, I mean, is that really, you know, what they thought they were trying to accomplish? Not really. But uh, I, don't, I don't think that's remotely successful in terms of what they, what they were trying to set out to do. But uh, it did have the effect, and also there was the rhetorical effect as well, of essentially endorsing this strategy that businesses and unions had come to in sort of an ad hoc basis of, you know, you keep wages low or falling or flat or, or anything, or falling in real terms, um, and we'll try not to fire you so much. With German consumers not having much money to spend, German companies with high profits needed a new place to put their money. With little demand at home, they had no choice but to send the money abroad. Oftentimes this went to the United States, but it also went to other countries in the Eurozone. Countries like Spain, Italy, and Greece were inundated with new money, and very quickly. No country has really ever been able to use that amount of money productively in such a short period of time. So instead, it went to more debt and wasteful investment. During a lot of discussions about debt in the Eurozone, the blame was typically placed on countries like Greece or Spain for spending more than they could afford. But rarely did people place any blame on the excess savings from Germany's domestic policies or the German banks that willfully lent money to these countries. At a global level, if you're having a massive concentration of income that suppresses consumption and also increases the amount of money available to use to accumulate financial assets, there's going to be somewhere a corresponding increase in indebtedness. It might not be in your country. It might be in your country, but it might not be. And in the case of the Euro area, because of the, the links that were present um, and the links that were deliberately created through the creation of the Euro, uh, a lot of those the indebtedness exist, occurred outside. In fact, in Germany's case, all of the indebtedness occurred outside of Germany, even though uh, Germany was the source of the original imbalance by suppressing consumption and suppressing wages. I think the number we had, basically, if you look at external indebtedness within the euro area, we're talking about trillions of euros uh, added of debt added between 2002 and 2008. Uh, much of this, much of which was funded either directly or indirectly by German savers, predominantly German businesses or rich Germans who owned those businesses. And, you know, the euro exacerbated all this because it essentially gave people a sense of safety, which is that, well, it's the same currency as my currency. What you see is this massive boom in cross-border lending across Europe, a massive expansion of the European banking system, which has mostly become undone as a result of the crisis. Uh, but there had, you know, in the 2000s, basically until 2008 or so, there was this real bank-based financial integration. It turned out to be very fragile and basically a disaster, as I said, that was mostly undone. But that was a key part of the story. And uh, that definitely exacerbated the impact of uh, Germany's own uh, domestic pathologies on its neighbors, particularly Spain, most obviously, but also Greece and Ireland and so forth. And thus, you can see why Germany's class war spills over into what appears to be a trade war. The domestic policies of Germany that keep wages low creates an excess of savings that eventually gets absorbed by other countries with detrimental effects. If you followed the Eurozone crisis at all, you could see how countries got angry at Germany's austerity and wanted them to increase their government spending to decrease their current account surplus. But Germany's government is very austere. 
and its investment is so low and bad that local governments are barely able to maintain existing infrastructure. Broadband speeds in Germany are very low, and public works projects are usually cut to make enough budget space to just keep paying teacher salaries and basic functions going. By some measures, Germany's inequality after taxes and transfers isn't all that bad, though, and comes out as better than a country like, say, the United States. So rather than prescribe a goal for what inequality should be in order to restore healthy trade balances, the book merely shows how unequal distributions can cause distortions in trade and finance. If we're looking at the changes in the balance of payments, you want to look at the changes in the distribution. And so even if you're coming from a relatively you know, equal base, if you become a lot more unequal from an equal base, then that's going to, that should affect, you know, sort of by our, our logic, that should affect your relationship, economic relationship with the rest of the world. And that's what we saw in Germany. It's also what you see in, in countries we don't really talk about a lot, but like Sweden, for example, right? Sweden is a very egalitarian society by most measures, but it's significantly less egalitarian now than it was by its own standard in, say, like the 1980s. And that change is consistent with the fact that you you have seen, you know, in many ways, some of the, not the same, but like certain of the same developments in Germany in terms of the, the relationship, you know, how fiscal policy has changed and, and welfare reforms and so forth. And you also, that's consistent with an increase in Sweden's current surplus. So there's, I think that that's a good way of thinking about this. The last country the book looks at is the United States. The U.S. has some similarities to Germany. Welfare reforms in the late 90s, a decreasing presence of unions, and high income per capita. But unlike Germany, the U.S. does not have a current account surplus. It has a current account deficit. This means that Americans buy more stuff from abroad than they sell to other countries. And perhaps the most important aspect of the U.S. that makes it unique when thinking about the themes mentioned in this book is the role that the U.S. dollar plays in international trade. The U.S. purely by its own sort of domestic conditions, you would think that it would actually have something very similar, uh, or have a very similar current account balance as Germany, because it basically went through very similar experiences as Germany in a similar time period. And it's weird that that's not what you have as a result. I mean, you had welfare reform in the U.S., you had a massive bust in business investment after the collapse of the tech bubble, you had relatively tight fiscal policy for a long time. You had a big change in business profitability at the expense of the labor share. I mean, all these things are pretty well matched on what happened in Germany. And then oftentimes they're in similar magnitudes. And so it's weird that you don't have um, a similar behavior in terms of the U.S. relationship with the rest of the world. In fact, you have the exact opposite one. And so in the U.S. case, what matters is that uh, for a variety of reasons, people in the rest of the world really like having their savings or in many cases, their excess savings, in dollar-denominated assets. And that uh, choice, which is partly affected, by the way, by U.S. conditions in terms of, you know, the U.S. financial system has developed in a way that it's very accommodating to foreign investors. It's very safe. It's a good legal system. You know, people speak English, so that obviously is going to be a thing that biases it towards it. Um, you know, the U.S. is a diversified economy, so if you have dollars, you can buy a lot of different things with it. But the net effect is that if people have savings they want to put somewhere, they put them in the U.S., the U.S. financial system will respond by creating more assets, generally speaking, and then that will end up naturally leading to a situation where the U.S. real economy will accommodate the, ex, you know, the corresponding excess flows of goods and services from the countries that have excess savings. In the early 2000s, U.S. fiscal policy had just come off of some years of balanced budgets. This meant that the typical risk-free and dollar-denominated asset U.S. Treasury bonds, were in short supply. But you can count on the financial system to create something for foreigners who are looking to invest in dollar assets. Voila! 
we were given mortgage-backed securities, a seemingly risk-free investment that latched onto the U.S. housing market. In fact, Deutsche Bank actually underwrote more mortgage-backed securities than Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, showing the role that excess savings in Germany played in propping the system up. It was also attractive to lenders because if a borrower couldn't pay, lenders could still take the house as collateral. With so much money looking for this new asset, the financial system had no choice but to expand the pool to less creditworthy borrowers and under less restrictive terms. But if you look at the amount of treasury and agency debt being created in this period, it wasn't actually enough to accommodate Chinese demand at the same time as it could have accommodated demand from all the other sectors of the world, including Americans who wanted to buy those assets. And so something had to change to respond to that. And essentially what happened in the 2000s was you had uh, the mortgage bubble because you know at the time it was viewed as the safest way to generate a large supply of new fixed income you know covered bonds have been around since the 1700s you know mortgage backed securities at first glance don't seem that different from covered bonds and and you can do some tweaks to them to you know create your ex- more supply that also has the you know effect of enabling consumption in excess of whatever production is in the US case production by the way did not you know stay steady or rise or whatever and The situation had a couple of consequences. First, Americans were buying houses they probably shouldn't have been buying, aided by a lot of debt. This increased demand for houses meant that house prices were going up, creating this veil of security for borrowers or lenders alike. Well, something goes wrong, I can always sell my valuable house. The other effect was that rising home values made Americans feel wealthier, and so they saw their home equity as a form of savings that could compensate for lower incomes which means they increased their spending more and took on even more debt. What could go wrong? You didn't have a consumption bubble in the U.S. I mean, it's, it's people think that we did, but we didn't. Actually, what happened was that consumption was sort of steady on its trend and production fell below its trend. And that was, you know, essentially another flip side of, of this phenomenon, which is that all this money is coming to the U.S. irrespective of whether it's rationally um, justified. When the demand for U.S. assets goes up, Another impact is that the value of the dollar compared to other currencies goes up. This makes it harder for U.S. companies to sell their goods to people in other countries. Because of this, the U.S. has a uniquely dire situation where its consumers are saddled with debt, but also its manufacturing base struggles to compete with foreign companies. Getting back to what we were saying at the very beginning, then... What that, that one of the consequences it's going to have is it's going to be an inflation of the price of the dollar relative to where it should be, and that's going to make U.S. a make U.S. exports very expensive, and so you're going to have exporters taking a hit there and their ability to produce. And you're also having a situation where any company in the U.S. that produces something that's also produced by someone else in the rest of the world is going to be a disadvantage relative to those imports. And so the net effect of that is going to be to reduce U.S. production and reduce U.S. employment, and that is going to be offset by a massive increase in debt which is clearly bad for Americans. Um, Also arguably bad for the rest of the world insofar as they're producing a lot of stuff they're not getting to enjoy. And that's why we talk about this, you know, that's why we frame this as a class war, right? Like it's not good for the workers in in China or Germany or anywhere else. In the United States, the share of wealth held by the richest 1% has gone from 22% to 42%. And almost all of that change can be attributed to gains by the top 0.1%. Remember that, just like in China and Germany, people with that much wealth are almost certainly going to spend their increased riches on new investments rather than buying new goods. The faltering manufacturing sector in the United States looks like it's in a trade war with China, but it's actually a response to class wars in other countries. The three countries we looked at all have unique circumstances, but they also all have unequal wealth and income distributions. 
Remember too that the book argues that countries can only have so much control over its external balances. Countries can improve their distributions by changing domestic policies, but they can still be at the whims of what other countries do. So what can countries do to better improve the nature of their trade balances? The construct of you know things that make it better for everyone, you really have to put the surplus societies in the driver's seat. Because if we're going to zoom out, the big problem here is that we have much more productive capacity than's currently being utilized. And I don't believe that this means that we should just slash productive capacity because we also live in a world that has a lot of poverty and unmet material needs. It means we have to figure out how to utilize the existing productive capacity better. How can we get global demand up? And if you zoom out and that's the problem, then that means that the societies that are under-consuming have to be in the driver's seat of doing more to increase their own domestic consumption and raise their living standards, which will end up redounding to higher living standards in the rest of the world. And so we talk about in the book things that can be done in, in Germany and Europe more generally and in China. And, and there are things that, you know, if you were to, we were to talk about, we can talk about other societies as well, whether it's Japan or Korea or Switzerland or what have you. But <clears throat> the problem with this approach is that, you know, presumably if people in those countries who were in charge, I should clarify, if people in charge in those countries wanted to do those things, they probably would have already done them by now because it's clearly good for the people who live there. It's just not good for them. And so that leaves the question of what do, pe- what do countries that are on the other side of the system have? What can they do? Like, what can the United States do? And that's where you sort of get to what I would consider destructive solutions. In other words, it would work narrowly for the US, but it doesn't really solve the global problem. And the obvious answer in that case is um, capital controls. You know, if, if if people can't move money into the United States from abroad, then all of the side effects that I was talking about a second ago and that we talk even more in detail about in the book, you know, those things don't happen here. They happen somewhere else. So it doesn't solve the general problem of, you know, the mismatch between production and consumption. It doesn't solve the problem of where those flows are go you know, that those flows are going somewhere and messing up the global economy. But at least you could protect Americans from it if you prevented foreign investment from coming into the country or limited how foreign investment came into the country. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted and produced by Will Compernell in New York, New York. My guest today was Matt Klein, co-author with Michael Pettis of the book Trade Wars Are Class Wars. Any questions, comments, email upsetpatterns at gmail.com.